present at the foundation of the world, at the, at, at the creation of the universe, who was instrumental in the creation of the universe, came as a baby. And how did the world receive him? John 1, 14 tells us the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It says he came to his own, and his own, his own people did not receive him. So you're either amazed by Jesus and drawn in, or you are pushed away because his claims are so out there. I mean, they're, they're out there, right? He claimed to bring a new kingdom. He claims to be the Messiah. He's claimed to be God's son. He claims that you need to believe in him, not in what he's done, but in who he is, that you need to believe in him, and then you need to build your life around it. I mean, you don't just kind of walk out and go, yeah, right? You either bow or you, you, you embrace or you run away and you reject. You do one or the other. And what we see today is even as a baby, he evokes a response. And you can't simply not react to Jesus if you heard what he said. We see the wise men and we see King Herod and their reactions in Matthew. So only two points today, right? I'm shortening you one. Number one, Herod, false worshiper. Two, wise men true worshipers. Let's jump in. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem when Herod was king. Uh, Herod was a, kind of a puppet king set up by the Roman government. He was in the pocket of the Romans. The Romans were the government and the nation that oppressed the Jews by put, uh, controlling food supplies, superimposing their laws, uh, raising taxes to pay for the roads to go through off the backs of the Jewish folks, right? He, and, and Herod was known as being a ruthless ruler. He had Ten wives. One of his favorite ones, he had her killed, had her murdered. He had at least two sons murdered because they were uh, th threatening his throne. He was in the process of building the, rebuilding the temple in the, from the Old Testament. He was building all kinds of governmental buildings, public buildings, and he was doing that by building his own reputation at the same time. And so as went the city, so went his re reputation and his power and his control. And he was given this control by Rome. And so they just kind of handed it to him to run. And he intended to keep it that way. So all that to say is that Herod was an ambitious ruler. He had a need for, for power and control, and he, he loved to be in charge, obviously. He liked being king. Who wouldn't? And he intended to stay that way. And verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And these are some mystery men. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of myths that have kind of cropped up over the years. If you pull out your phone right now and you Google the Magi, you're going to get a lot of different stuff, right? It's all kinds of stuff there. But I'll tell you, we don't really know where they came from, but somebody will say Babylon, somebody will say Persia, Mesopotamia. The Bible just simply says the East. We don't know how many wise men there were. We have three in our nativity sets, right? But that's not necessarily, the Bible doesn't say that there were three. We assume that maybe because there were three gifts that were given. Um, we don't really know. Um, some literature suggests that when wise men of this nature traveled, they would travel in groups of 30, or 50, 30 to 50. Um, in fact, they probably shouldn't be in our nativity, set, our nativity sets because they probably came when Jesus was a little bit older, maybe even up to two years old. So our set sits you know, here with... Jesus, Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds, and then we've got the, the wise men traveling over here, you know, it's kind of just to scale, if you will, right? Because <laughs> we know, I know, I've done all the research. I don't know. I mean, that sounds good. That's the best I got. 
So that's where we are. We don't know their names. If you Google right now, names of wise men, it'll say, boom, yes, Caspar, Melchor, and Balthazar. I'm like, yeah, that came somewhere in the 6th, 7th century from the Western church. We don't, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. We don't believe they're kings. We three kings of Orient are. Maybe not, right? Maybe not three, maybe not kings. Our songs mislead us sometimes. We don't know. We know that they were skilled in astrology, in dream interpretation, in magic. Think about maybe the magicians back with Moses in Pharaoh's court when they were able to do tricks. And Moses did something and they did something. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's kind of equal and it's like they're boxing magically, right? That, that's kind of what was, was going on with the Magi. They show up in the Old Testament uh, when with the children of Israel are in captivity in Babylon, like in the book of Daniel, in the book of Esther. They're soon to be Gentiles because it says they're from the east. Um, ironically, they're the first to call Jesus king of the Jews. They're the first to worship Jesus, and they're the first to give gifts to Jesus. And so these are the guys that approach King Herod in verse 2 and ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I told you who Herod was so that I could tell you what they're looking for. Because this is a staggering statement in general, right? I mean, if you, if you think about it, certainly for Herod. So these guys have been following the star to, from uh, Jerusalem, kind of like the children of Israel when they wandered around in the desert. They followed a fire by night and a cloud by day, kind of that idea. Okay, so we're, we're following that. They were following the star like that. And so they walk up they say, Hey, uh, king of the Jews, where is... The king of the Jews. That's kind of a different way to maybe phrase that. You can make sense of verse 3 a little bit. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, right? Why? Because the obvious, the, the answer seems obvious. Though you walk up to a king of the Jews and you say, where is the king of the Jews? He would say, right here, right? Therefore, they're looking for someone else. They assume it's not him. Therefore, he was troubled, and then verse 3 continues dot, dot, dot with, and all Jerusalem with him. Why is that? When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's kind of the, the way that goes. He will pass down his misery to those that are beneath him. That, that is kind of the, the feel that you get, right? He's a, a, a supposed challenger to the throne, a challenger who now the outside world is aware of and is watching that uh, they know that there's this prophecy to, to have another king, that's troubling. They knew that, and Jerusalem knew his rage was going to get passed down, whether that's you know, new laws or tightening requirements, we don't know. And so he gets his, his priests and his scribes together, and he's like, all right, where is this Christ going to be going, born? We've, we've got to find out about this. And they're reading the book of Micah, chapter 5, and, they, and that's quoted in, in verse 6 there in Matthew 2. And he says, Bethlehem is the place. And so Herod's very interested in this. And so he secretly, he se doesn't let anybody know, he secretly brings the wise man in, however many there were, and says, hey, when did y'all find out about the star? I want to get some timing on this. Uh, I'm, I want to be accurate. And, and maybe he didn't tell the scribes and the Pharisees. He was just asking them, hey, random question, scribes and Pharisees. So if, there was the, you know, if the Messiah was to be coming, where would he be? And then just kind of left it at that. Because it doesn't make any sense to me for the scribes and Pharisees to hear that some people have been reading a prophecy, they've been following a star, they've come into town, they tell him Bethlehem, and then 
not mentioned again. <laughs> they don't want to grab the quickest Uber camel and drive to, to Bethlehem, right? I would want to find out, well, let's find out. Is this something to this? Why are we asking these questions? We've been waiting for this Messiah for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's just like, yeah, he, he'll be in Bethlehem. I got some writing to do. Why, why are they not mentioned? I don't understand, so I'm thinking maybe Herod didn't tell them. I don't know. That's just speculation. But it's back to business as, as usual. And Herod says to him, to the wise man, when you find the child, let me know, because I too want to worship him. Now, Ruthless killed his own family members, wants to do anything at, at all he can to stay king. Do you believe him? No. And if you keep reading in verse 16, you, you learn that he's lying. He's not telling the truth, although he wants them to perceive him a certain way. Right? He wants the outsiders who don't really know him to have a good opinion of him. And, so, and also to make sure that, they, that he gets the information. So it's not worship that Herod is feeling, it's threat. He feels a threat for his kingdom, a threat for his power, a threat for his control, a threat for his wealth, his influence, his whole world. And now there's a baby being born into kingship. See, the Romans gave him, allowed him to run the place. So we want to keep Rome happy. And now there's somebody that's saying is being born into it? And so he puts on this face of benevolence and caring to the wise man. And he comes across as desiring to worship and looking like he wants to worship, right? But in reality, he is secretive, deceptive, manipulative, jealous, self-preserving at all costs. He wants to worship Jesus, not because Jesus is the Messiah, not because he's the Son of God and he's worthy of all praise, but as a means to an end, a way to hold on to what he has. And if he were honest, he isn't going to worship Jesus at all. He's going to worship himself. That, that's what he's doing. He's a false worshiper, and he will use God to maintain his position. He will make much of God to the degree that God makes much of him and gives him what he thinks is due and what he's earned and what he's gotten and what he's holding on to, right? Let's him stay in control. I'll worship so that I can stay king. And that's how I'll prove that God is good. This is not worshiping God. This is worshiping yourself, keeping yourself on the throne. And Jesus lived the opposite of this. We talk about this all the time, how there's just this upside-down idea to the kingdom. He emptied himself of his title. He emptied himself of his power, of his status, of his wealth, of his position, of his home, so that true worship of the Father could happen. We read it in Philippians, where he says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, not the form of a mighty military leader, not the form of a political dignitary, not a form of power, but he displayed power through weakness, even unto death. This is a different kind of Messiah. This is not what we expected at all. It's a baby. Who would choose that? And yet Herod was threatened by Jesus. Herod was king of Jerusalem, king of his own life, and, and he decided how he would live. He decided what was going to happen. He had control. And now knowing that there is a new king, possibly one that foreign folks are coming in to worship and give their treasures to, he's challenged on his throne. And it's unsettling to him. How about you? Does Jesus threaten you? 
Has he threatened you? What are you saying, Jamie? I'm saying we all have a Herod on the throne of our hearts. We want to reign. We want to look like we want to reign. We want to make it look like we're benevolent, good, caring, nurturing, but we want to reign. And if we can do both, that's just gravy. We want to call the shots and have people bend to our will. We all have a kingdom that we're trying to run. I have a kingdom. Um, I have four children, so I have four unruly subjects in my kingdom, right? And they let me know all the time. And sometimes things are going well, and sometimes things are not going so well. Sometimes it's on public display. And, and then you, you, you know I'm, I'm feeling a little bit too much of my kingdom. It's a little too important when I get angry quickly, and I'm like, stop that. Stop speaking out. Be obedient. You, you, know, that you're, you know how to act. You're a nettles. You know, you, you start down that road. It's my kingdom. The kingdom's out of control. Yeah, it happens. Sometimes I think I know how it ought to go, and I, I claw and scheme and manipulate to get the outcome that I know should happen. I know that this is the way our family should present. This is the way it is on Facebook, so this has got to be the way it is every time I go anywhere. And so I've got to hold on to it. Maintain the kingdom. Claw. Herod it. And I end up acting like Herod. And Jesus' call on my life becomes more of a threat than a blessing. And I'm just like Herod in that I want people to think that I'm kind and generous and a great parent and loving, while inside I just want them to do what I want them to do. If you would just do what I want, we won't have a problem. Because that's the definition of a problem, right? Your will is crossed. You don't get what you want. We call that a problem. And then when our problems run into other problems, we, get, we call that complicated. Right? That, that's how you get the definitions of this. Well, he's a complex fellow. That means he's got a lot of problems that are intersecting a lot of other people's problems. That, that's what is going on in my heart sometimes. And I read Jesus, and he says things like Luke 14, 33. He says, so therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. I'm like, that's polarizing. It, it is. He threatens your kingdom. And you can't have two kings in one kingdom. And you can't have two kingdoms in the same place. It's not possible. And Jesus as rightful king has a demand on your life. And those of us who believe in him, our life is not our own. We were bought with a price, a price of, of his life and his precious blood. And he's the one who tells us how to live. It's a threat. Now, it's full of delight. It is full of joy and worship, but he is the focus of our kingdom, not us. And that's where the rub happens. He's the object of our worship, not ourselves. And when we don't believe he is enough, we claw our way like Herod, trying to maintain our, our kingdom or trying to build a kingdom or trying to hold on to the appearance for other people of our kingdom. We're not that bad. We are okay. We're better than whatever we were. And you get tired, or you get angry, or you get bitter, or you shut down, or you disengage. We respond in a lot of different ways. What is your kingdom? What do you think you're the king of, or the queen of? 
Is it a kingdom of success? Well, you've got to achieve, you've got to get letters behind your name from education, or you've got to go to a certain school, or you've got to go to a certain level of education. You've got to be in, in a certain vocation. Is it, it's about your career. Is it a kingdom of comfort? Like, I, I know we're supposed to hand, uh, Jamie, I know I've read that, you know, Matthew 25 and other places where you hand a cup of cold water to the poor and to the marginalized and to those who are needy, and, and I'm supposed to do that. We're supposed to take care of the widows and take care of the orphans, and we as a church are doing that, but that's just not comfortable for me. I, I, don't, even know, I don't know how to have those conversations. I don't know how to engage, and then I'm just going to stop there. And instead of saying, I don't know how, but help, I'm just going to say, that's not for me. That's a kingdom of comfort. It's unwilling to follow Jesus. Maybe it's a kingdom of beauty. You must hold on to beauty to feel like you're valued or talent or achievement or having the perfect family or the, fir- the perfect marriage. What is it in your life that you will scheme and excuse sinful behavior, excuse sinful behavior to hold on to, to protect? The Christmas message is simple here. Let go. Let go of your kingdom. It's not really yours. You just think it is. And like Herod, it's an illusion that you think you're in control. You think you have power over it. You think you're keeping up appearances. And there are cracks that are growing all over the place. Lay it down. Let Jesus rule. He was born king. And then he secured it through his death, burial, and resurrection. Stop feeling threatened. Just lay down your kingdom. Invite Jesus to rule your life. It's the simple message. Number two, wise men. True worshipers. So the wise men are willing to come this long distance. This weeks and weeks on camel, camelback, walking, whatever. There's danger. They were leaving their families, their, their homes, possibly not going to return just due to the nature of travel at the time. What's driving them? I mean, yeah, curiosity, I'm sure. And in the study of their stars and, and whatever the sources they had available to them, I mean, possibly there were some Jews that were there left over from the Babylonian captivity, right, out that way. And they, they, they were learning that there's this greater king being preached, this preexistent king that's going to be born, coming to rule and reign the world like no one has ever seen before. And so they follow that star that led them to Jerusalem. They meet with Herod. And then they, the star actually, at this point, the Bible records, moves from Jerusalem to Bethlehem until it comes to rest over where the child was. And the Bible says, when they got there, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I love that phrase. We, we need more exceedingly <laughs> in, our, in our lives, more exceedingly with great joy. They saw that the child was Mary, with Mary, and then they fell down and worshipped him. And they offered him their treasures. They were captured by his majesty. They didn't just kneel and go through the process the word is fell down it is a response it's like you see something and you do something you don't premeditate it you you don't think about it you don't have a plan going in it's a response you hit me right here and my knee jumps that's a response right and so that's what's happened they are in the presence of majesty that's why they came they knew it they are in awe they are floored by what like this there's this this is a, a point in time where heaven and earth meet in the form of a child never going to happen again and so he is going to be the child that lays down his life for the whole world 
They didn't come to promote themselves or, or to hold on to anything or to ask for anything. And these Gentiles simply came to worship. And there's great joy and worthy of their worship. And this, this is a time to worship, to take our eyes off of ourselves. Because holidays, last week we talked about struggles and difficulties in holidays and how they can be, they can just kind of bring to a head all of the issues and problems that are in family, and they kind of force it. This week we just simply say, this is also a wonderful time to take our eyes off of ourselves. A time to simply be in the presence of Christ, of Jesus himself. To, to, to table for a moment what's going well in life and what's not going well. And to table what, what's uh, winning in our lives and what's losing in our lives right now. And just put it on the side and realize it's not about me. It's not about how well my family gels and, and is cohesive and, and loves family events, events and how we look like a Hallmark card. Because we don't. We put the, some people say, well, I put the fun and dysfunctional in our family, right? We just messed up, and then now we got to come together and, oh, just put it to the side and just come into the, the, the house and just respond in worship. It's not about us. Be freed just for a little while. That it's about Jesus. That puts Jesus at the center. Because when you put him in the center, you remember why you came in the first place, why you came to him, why you were drawn to him. It was about worship, which is the end goal of everything. Missions is to get to that end, right? That is to get to the end of worship of all peoples. The whole earth is going to be full of the glory of God. It's going to be filled with it. And so that's our longing. That's what's in our heart. We came to worship. And like the wise men, we want to be amazed. We want to be in awe of our Creator. You may have forgotten that along the way because you were burdened. Broken relationships or career struggles or the death of a dream or financial ruin. It's a lot of things that sidetrack us. And your eyes move from the object of true worship and away from the star that was leading you. And the next thing you know, it leads down to yourself. And that's all you can see, and that's your new lens for life, is how does this affect me? What about me? Where is mine? And it's hard to worship when that's the only thing you can see. And you can't respond, and you can't fall down, because you're already inverted in your posture. So this is an invitation today. This is a great opportunity to stop, don't beat yourself about that anymore and say, take your eyes off yourself and your situation if just for a moment and behold him this Christmas. Spend a few days by yourself or with, with your family. I mean, you're all together. Find a way to focus on his glory, to, to focus on his works and his splendor and his majesty and the triumph of his victory. He came like he said he was going to come. That's what we're celebrating. He said he's going to do it, and he did it. He said he's going to come back, and now we're waiting, and we're in that in-between time. And we feel the ah uh, of it. Uh, can't spell it. But you feel it. And the brokenness of this world, and we long for him to come back, and he kept his promise. This is more than a manger scene or the innocence of a child. It's more than the peace on a winter's night. This is cataclysmic events of world order shifting. 
of darkness being defeated. It's worth following this glory and this majesty and this victory. You need to see it. You need to have it in front of you a lot. You need to smell it. I got reminded of that this week when I was reading an article um, that just came out. I think it was maybe December 11th. Not quite two, maybe two weeks ago. There's a a church that's being persecuted in in China called Early Rain. I don't know if you've been following some of the stories or not. Early Rain Covenant Church. And um, there was a pastor there that was taken into uh, detention or into prison. And he had written a letter kind of anticipating this back in September or October. And he had had said, hey, listen, if I've been detained for more than 48 hours, release this letter. And so I read the letter. I mean, it's a long letter. This This guy, he's in the thick of it. And so after that happened, they came to their, their gatherings, the, the authorities did. This is a church that's not registered with a, uh, a Bureau of, of Religion or anything, and so it's an underground church, but they had a building they were meeting in. They put locks on the building. They detained uh, about 100 people. I think three were, um, were, were tortured, according to some of the reports. Um, they took he and his, uh, Wang Yi and his wife were charged with inciting subversion of state power, uh, which is punishable by 15 years in prison. And so this letter... I just want to read you a part of it. This is a guy that, that is able to see past what we see with physical eyes. This is a guy that's able to see the majesty that the wise men saw. And he, and he wrote, and this is just one small part of it. I was amazed by, by his ability to write and seeing what was going to happen. And after I've been to, to India and Nepal and I've, I've seen persecution up close, he says, separate me from my family, from my wife and my children. Ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. I want to talk like that. I want to believe like that. I have moments, and I pray that if I get detained or something like that happens, that I will talk like that by God's grace, that he will give it to me right when I need it. There was a prayer update from the church, from some of the elders that weren't detained a few days later, and we haven't heard from him since. Early rain summed up uh, the church's current situation in this prayer. Lord, today we worship you in police cars. We worship you in police stations. We worship you in detention centers. We worship you in prisons, and we worship you in homes. We have no other goal except to worship you alone. That's somebody that's been captured by a great Savior with a great hope that doesn't stop with the limits of our imagination. I saw a quick YouTube that that happened maybe a few days ago where they had picked an alternate location to kind of meet because in in the instructions from the elders on what to do in case something like this happened, it's like the very last thing that said is at the the very last resort is to meet in homes privately. Let's try to meet in parks. Let's try to meet publicly as much as we can. And so they were meeting in a park that they had kind of of chosen beforehand, I guess, to meet in. And they were reciting part of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is what they're, and and I, I just listened to this in a chorus of, one guy would read, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the response was that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And they would say it, and they would say it, and they would say it. These are people that have been captured 
by the majesty of Jesus. Have you? Have you seen him in such a way to be able to talk like that? To, to worship like that? To not be like Herod that worships to the degree that things are going well for him and then turn and try to control the kingdom the minute that they don't. Because th- that's in me. I do that. I am a Herod. And by his grace, he draws me back to him. But as I mature, what I want to do is see less of Herod in me and more of wise men that do things that are wise, like bow down and fall in response to seeing the majesty of Christ because my eyes have been made to see and my heart has been warmed and I understand and I I, I see now. And it leads me to read things that I just cannot get away from, like Psalm 145 that has just been pressed into my heart over the last three weeks that I just, I've got to read it to you. You've got, I, w- I want my heart to explode and to be able to, to say things like this. It says this. I'll just read nine verses of it. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. And like, whatever's happened in me, it makes me want to do this forever. Not for 10 minutes, not until I get to the end of my shift, but I want to live like this in this presence like Peter last week. Hey, let's just build some tents. I want to stay here forever. All right? He says, I want to bless your name forever and ever. Do you know God's name like that? Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. It gives me joy and fuel and strength. He says, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your righteousness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Does that capture your heart? Do you, do you see how... Now, David was captured in, magic, in, in worship like the wise men. Will you embrace the true king? Or be like Herod and, and reject eternal wisdom for your own worship to maintain your own kingdom? Will you be like the wise men and ask to see Jesus, ask to have the blinds removed, ask to have your heart that's maybe cold or hardened, to ask it to be softened. He's got to do that. You can't figure that out on your own. You can't tell your heart, hey, heart, like that. Hey, fall in love with that person. You got no power. You just think you do. Help. And there's Mark 9. I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't see you like I should. I'm not falling down today. I want to. Take this whole heart. And dip it in your oil and your wine and soften it up. And draw me back to the wonder of who you are. It's, at Christmas, we celebrate his first coming and we rejoice while we're waiting in that tension for him to come and for to come again and, and to set this broken, evil, sinful world right like it should be. And so we sing, we sing about joy to the world. Every time we decorate a tree and put, put lights on a tree and we hang greenery that represents life and we put lights on our houses that light up the darkness and shoo darkness when we gather for parties and sing, when we give gifts that express, you know, like when my kids give me gifts, 
Guess what? They ain't got no job. That's my money. They're giving me something with my money. They didn't earn it, but they're giving it, and they're giving it with joy. That's how we give things to God. It's his stuff. We just think we're proud to be a part of the process. Here is your, you know, tithe. And God's just like, I love this tithe. It's from you. Yeah. We repeat the sounding joy. It's like the psalm says, the song says, at the announcement that Christ has come. That's how you have a Merry Christmas. Not, not by having all the gifts that you want on your list and not by having the perfect Christmas Day family gathering. It's by dwelling on the victory and majesty of God, by taking your eyes off of yourself and delighting in his presence. We have a strong hope. We have a great Savior, and I hope that you know him today. Let's pray together. Worship team's going to come up. Um, we're going to pray three directives. Number one, just pray that you might take your eyes off yourself. We recognize this can be difficult times. I also knew that what Isaiah did when he first saw God, he looked at himself and, woe is me. Hang out, navel gaze a little bit. I'm terrible. My family's terrible. This is very difficult. And then his head was lifted at the majesty of God, and he looked at God. He didn't stay there. And so today we're lifting our eyes off of ourselves onto our majestic Savior. Ask for that. Pray for an opportunity to share your faith with a neighbor. You may want to make some cookies or some divinity or uh, gluten-free something or other for your neighbor. I don't know. Seems to be popular now. You try something. Make a little plate and just walk over to somebody's house. And go, you know what? We should have been friends a long time ago. You live on my street. I don't even know your name. I'm sorry. But because it's Christmas, there's your end. And people do things like this at Christmas. I want to start doing things like this all the time because of Jesus. Boom! Obstacle torn down. Find ways this week. Ask God to give you a, a hunger to do that and a desire and an outlet. And then finally, let's just pray for the persecuted church in China, all over the world. Let's just pray for our brothers and sisters. Let's not forget them. We're going to do that for maybe two minutes, and then I'll, I'll pray. 